Before we get started, are you registered to vote? Exercise your right and register to vote at vote.gov or rockthevote.org. The general election, the presidential election, will be Tuesday, November 3rd. The registration deadline for the general election is on Monday, October 5th. The early voting period for the general election will be October 24th through October 31st. That's one week. You have one week to take advantage of that early voting period. And don't forget, folks, you can also vote by mail. For more information, check out vote.gov and rockthevote.org. Back to Perspectives. I'm your host, Eugenio Arana. On today's show, we'll be speaking with behavioral therapist Donnie Ramirez. Ramirez is based out of South Florida and is in her fifth year practicing behavioral therapy. She mainly works with children with developmental disorders. She'll talk to us about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected families that have autistic kids and how the pandemic has affected her line of work. We'll discuss how changes to routines have affected families, how limited the means of assistance has been due to the pandemic, the lack of professional training, and we'll get into her first-hand experience working in the front lines of behavioral therapy. But first. One of the main reasons I launched this podcast was to capture in real time the impacts of the pandemic. COVID-19 has obviously thrown a major curveball in every aspect of life, especially in the United States. The mental toll for the many affected is unprecedented. The readjustments we've all had to make has been difficult, especially for family life. The spread of the virus in the United States started around February, March of 2020. By June, the country was reaching its apex in terms of fear, fear purchasing especially. Grocery stores were getting cleared out and toilet paper sales were at an all-time high. You couldn't even find toilet paper at some point. And those are just some of the minor problems that we had faced around that time. These are stressing times without a doubt, but one very sad but very real story out of Miami stood out. Patricia Ripley was charged with her autistic son's murder. Ripley, the West Kendall mother, initially claimed that her severely autistic nine-year-old son had been kidnapped, but ultimately admitted that she was to blame for the child's death at a canal. A few days later, shocking surveillance video of her apparently pushing the child into the canal was published and aired on Univision's national news network. This was Ripley's first attempt. A neighbor had saved the boy the first time. Ripley later drowned the boy at a nearby lake. For more information on the development of the story of Prince and Patricia Ripley, please visit themiamiherald.com and read the story covered and written by David Ovalle. I also ran into a story on CDC.gov, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, titled Coping with Stress. It read, Fear and anxiety about a new disease and what could happen can be overwhelming and cause strong emotions in adults and children. Public health actions such as social distancing can make people feel isolated and lonely and can increase stress and anxiety. However, these actions are necessary to reduce the spread of COVID-19. Coping with stress in a healthy way will make you, the people you care about, and your community stronger. This crisis is forcing adjustments to our everyday life as we know it. Moving forward, we must think critically. We need to focus our efforts on being as prepared as possible to overcome these new challenges. Let's rely on the experts in our field to outline the best protocol so that we can get things back to normal. Thankfully, we have one of those experts as our guest.
We are joined today by behavioral therapist Danya Ramirez. Danya, thank you for joining us. Um, uh, so what we want to get into today is first take us through the world of behavior therapy. What are the challenges that you go through? What made you get into behavior therapy? How did you get into this career? Okay, so I accidentally got into this career. So I was originally wanting to do nursing. And that kind of didn't, you know, go the right way. Like there were just classes that I really didn't like like. And I ended up taking a class and it was a behavioral class. And I ended up like loving it. I loved how like we could manipulate like environmental changes that can in, like manipulate people's behaviors. So then um, I got an internship once I took that one class. Like I applied for this internship and then that's how I like started. So I started like working in the internship and then I really like enjoyed it. I've always known that I wanted to work with children like at a really young age like I used to volunteer at um like after school cares like be a mentor things like that and um yeah so then that's how I ended up falling into the field and ever since then like when I started with that internship I just continued working and before you got there and you got into the industry it took a lot of school right to get to this point to be able to be in a position where you got an internship because I know it's not easy getting an internship in the medical field, for example. Yeah, so it wasn't as challenging, I guess, because FIU provides so many resources. Um, there, so that's how like I got into it because of FIU and like you know um, taking that class and you know there was all those resources available to me. Um, so it wasn't as challenging to get into the field. Actually, it's pretty easy. So. Once you were getting these internships and you saw yourself in, you were curious by the behavior therapy. What um, what, what was the first uh, what was the first like moment where the light bulb turned on and you were like, yes, this is for me, or hey, I have a shot on this. Okay, so good question. So at the beginning, it was very challenging because you know I got in, I worked with typical children. I've never worked with children who had developmental disabilities. So you kind of have to learn like a whole new way of talking basically so um it was it was like a a punch in the face because it wasn't what I expected at I at my internship one of the very first clients that I worked with was a nonverbal kid um it was a really hard case like it was really really hard for me and why why what were some of the challenges early on so like I said he was nonverbal so typically with nonverbal they can express themselves so if you can express yourself imagine let's say you have a headache and you can't tell your parents that you have a headache and you, the only way to get rid of the pain is hitting your head on something or hitting yourself or, you know, hitting someone else like to, you know, be like, hey, I'm going through this pain. So that's kind of like um, the challenges that these kids face where they don't have a voice. So they figure out ways to um, communicate their pain, their hunger, like all these things. So what we try to teach them is a functional way to communicate those things. So by picture exchange, so we'll have like different kinds of like pictures and they'll know like, oh, a picture of food, a picture of toys or a picture of whatever. And we kind of, that's a, like a way of, um, you know, functional communication training is what we call it. But early on, I had a case like that where he was nonverbal and, um, I feel like I wasn't, since it was an internship and um, I didn't have all the tools yet, like my toolbox to like be able to work with that. Um, there was a lot of things. He was physically aggressive, 
pull my hair, bite, scratch, and I kind of was like, I'm over my head. So I went to, um, like, my supervisor. I was like, I'm in over my head. Like, let's... um. I have, I can't, I can't handle this, you know? So they restaffed me with somebody who was like a little bit better for me, for my experience. And, um, one of the moments where I was like, okay, this is for me. It was when I was, I had a baby who was like learning how to talk. And then he was able to like, you know, say my name or say his mom's name or say things like that. And you see the parents that are like, oh my God, I thought I would never hear my child's voice. Or I thought like he would never be able to have a, co a conversation with me. And then we're bringing out these conversations. And then it's like, it's so amazing. And like, I think that's when I was like, okay, I definitely want to do this because the challenges are really hard. But like, once you see like your work pay off, you're like, oh my God, this is so amazing. Now, when, like, I think a better question is what defines progress? I know you just gave us a hint of that, but what defines progress? And I'm sure it means different for every single kid because not every child is the same, right? Yeah. So we target, the way we target our goals, um, basically we assess the child. So there's different forms of assessment. It really depends on what your company uses or whatnot, but Let's so, give us an example how our kids assessed. Okay. So there's something called the ABLES R and it uses, um, the way children's typically develop. And so let's say, okay, it will say children should start like by the age of five, they should be saying, um, six word phrases or whatever so we kind of assess like those kinds of things also is a child potty trained is a child does he recognize his own name because there's some kids we have to they don't even look like if you say their name they have no idea it's like over their head so it's like different things we'll see their deficits based on the assessments and also we'll talk to the parents to see what goals they want to work on for their child and we create those goals and we we monitor that progress so for example I'm gonna talk to you with the ABLES because the ABLES is something that I'm familiar with and we use there's different criteria to each thing so let's say we're working on imitation right so criteria one would be like okay cannot imitate or whatever and then criteria two would be like oh can imitate three to five um things criteria four so basically like that it's different criteria levels we also monitor um um like the behavior so most of these kids the reason why they have those problem behaviors um are because they're functioning as like they're functioning as their way of getting something so Typically, we say there's four functions of behavior, and four of those functions are attention, access to a reinforcer, a tangible something, escape, or sensory. So if they don't want a task, instead of telling you, I need a break, they probably will punch you in the face. Or instead, like, you know, so th that's very something very dramatic, but um, those are things that we see. Or instead of saying, I'm hungry, right? They'll like cry or have a tantrum instead of appropriately telling you, hey, I need food or I need a break. Give me five minutes, like, you know? Um, so yeah, that's how we monitor our progress. So based on like those um, criteria levels based on the objectives and the data like of the problem behavior so obviously we want those problem behaviors to decrease and we want the objectives or goals um, that we're working on to increase now what age do 
children typically get assigned a behavioral therapist or, or, or what age do does the parents seek out um, this help? Okay, so it's different for everyone, but typically the, there's um, milestones that your child should be reaching. Um, and that's established like by birth, like once it's, it's not at birth, but once it's known that the child, that child has autistic uh, syndrome. Or- well, some people don't know those things. So you have to like, as a parent, when you have a child, there's milestones that you really have to look at. For example, looking like, um, looking at people's eyes. Like we are like, there's been so many studies that, um, show like how, interesting like your faces to like babies so then like being able to recognize that like that's one of the things doing eye contact we do it like it's nature for us it's instinct but for somebody who maybe doesn't attend um it's not we have to teach those things so eye contact is something that i teach it's something so simple that you would like think oh who needs to teach eye contact but that's something that we need to do how, why? Because it shows that you're attending and that's how we learn. So by watching my mouth move, you can learn how to move your mouth the same way to make the same sounds. How much of a blank slate is it for, for parents? Like- well, parents really, on, I, I don't have kids either, but I have lots of nieces and nephews and stuff. And, and one of the resources, of yeah, and I work with lots of families. But one of the things that you should really, there's a lot of resources out there that um, can tell you different milestones for your child. So, for example, another one of the milestones that we talked about was the eye contact. Another one is having the child um, play with toys appropriately. So, even though that's something that's a given too, that's something that you should be watching that your child is doing. Can the child put the toy from one hand to the other? That's a milestone. Like, because they're doing, they need to look at, like, their frame of vision or whatever like has to go from one to the other so that's one of the things too another thing that um um you could like that is a milestone is them reacting to their name so when you say their name constantly they're looking they're like okay this this is my like that's me when they say this they're talking to me you know so um that's another milestone another milestone would be um the language usually comes in within like a year, year and a half. They should be able to say at least three words. So usually food is a big one. Papa is one of the things or mom and dad. And when those things don't come in, I know it's different because for boys, they develop different like a lot later than girls. Um, so it varies. It's not like, a okay, if they don't say three words by the age of two, then they're backed up but you should get it checked you should be telling your pediatrician and your pediatrician should be telling you these things these milestones as well like hey is he doing this is he doing that so so traditionally this is not foreign information is what i'm saying like most parents going into this they have been advised at one point or another from their doctors that, you their know pediatricians the yeah they pediatricians. should be and they should be noting but sometimes it goes unseen sometimes there's things that so there's different levels of the spectrum. So there's like higher functioning and a lower functioning. So higher functioning, maybe he was able to do all of those things. But then once like he reached like a certain age, you realize, hey, he's not playing with other children. And maybe that's a red flag. Like, hey, he kind of plays with his toys in a certain way that not typical children play with the toys. So lining up your toys in a certain way, being very... OCD for lack of better words because it's not really OCD but being 
being very specific of how they play in a repetitive like motion those things are the things that you like are red flags and usually like when they start preschool that's when you start noticing those things like when they're four or five years old you're like hey he's not playing with other kids he's not doing these things and teachers can really notice when you have a typical child and you have a child with developmental disabilities they really stand out so what you've said is attention to detail is fundamental to this a lot of observation is fundamental to this how is anybody supposed to do this with a 40 plus hour work week if you're a parent i know it's tough and that's why we're in we're there so once your kid gets diagnosed once your kid your pediatrician will start noticing those things or you will tell your pediatrician they'll um send you to a neurologist they'll refer you to a neurologist they'll run some tests the neurologist will be like okay yeah he needs he'll refer you to aba therapy speech therapy occupational therapy physical therapy whatever it is that your child needs so um that's basically how it goes and then with us um, like I said, we'll do those assessments and see the child's deficits, see what problem behaviors he's having, and then we'll come up with um, an intervention. What are some of the other obstacles that can get in the way of parents getting this help, getting this extra aid? Okay, so um, one of the big ones, and we're, we have so much here in the state of Florida because there's so much fraud. A lot of insurances don't want to pay for these services. Medicaid is one of the biggest ones that people do so much fraud. And, and yeah, unfortunately, like it directly affects all of us. It affects the child because they can't get the services they need. It affects us because we need work as well, you know, like, so it's just, it's, it's tough. Is it an out-of-pocket expense? If you don't have insurance, Yes, it would be out of pocket, but most insurances do provide that. But there's also a lot of issues that come along with that. I've had clients who need um, 20 hours a week, right? But the kid is not showing any progress for whatever reason. So the insurances would say, hey, he's not really showing progress. So maybe this is not really working for him. So we're going to reduce his hours. So now you'll have an aggressive client, which has happened to me. Um, He is aggressive. His parents really don't have much help because they're working so hard, you know? And then you're trying to do your best for that child, but then you only have 10 hours a week with him. And honestly, his behaviors are probably not even going to get better with that. The more we talk, the more I realize that it takes a community to try to make this work. And I mean, and we can... Even if we're talking about a normal child, it takes a community to make sure that this child is able to have a normal life, right? Not throwing the curveball of having a disability or or, or mental disorder. Like, it's like learning a whole new language. So sometimes these kids, mind you, they're in school. Um, Because of the fact of political reasons, we're not allowed to go into certain schools. Now they're reallowing us to enter the schools, but that's been in the works why is that though? Why are you are certain schools not allowing behavior therapists? Because there, I mean, there's a lot of issues. So, for example, we have to sit in a classroom that can be distracting for the other children who are in that classroom. Also, HIPAA, like that's a really big one. Like, um, 
we can tell the parents, oh yeah, we're here because this child has autism and I'm their therapist. It's a conf- or, that's confidential information, yes, right? Yes, that's what exactly. HIPAA is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what HIPAA is. So there's that. There's also parents don't want like their child, like the school to know that their child has like a disability or whatnot. So there's a lot of issues. Some teachers don't want you in their classroom for whatever reason. You're there to help them, but sometimes that doesn't transfer, like, you know? So children with developmental disabilities, um, they still have to attend regular classes or they're in special classes where a behavior therapist can come, well, in this case, depending on the school, can come and observe and help and be part of that child's development? Yeah, so um, there's not a lot of schools for kids with developmental disabilities. Um, A lot of them are private here in Miami. So that means they cost money. So it's really sad and unfortunate. In public schools, there's special classrooms, but in that special classroom, it's called a contained classroom. Um, sometimes that's not the best place for certain kids because they'll have other kids who have Down syndrome. They'll have like other like conditions, um, which where we want for our kids is to mainstream. So basically be put with the regular children because they tend to model those behaviors that a typical child has. So do we want to put them in a class where they're not gonna learn how to behave socially appropriately, you know? Amongst the amongst class. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's really tricky. Sometimes you can get like really good school like a public school that will have a great um contained classroom that can have a model student that most kids can like you know like see and learn from or whatever but it's not really it's it's not really accessible we're joined by donnie ramirez a behavior therapist based out of south florida we're under a pandemic right now we're under COVID 19 like how much of that has been has made an impact in your line of work right now yeah so it's made a huge impact Um, One is for me right now, I have a client which I'm teaching social skills to, right? He's a higher functioning kid um, and basically he just needs help with communicating with his peers, playing with his peers. How am I supposed to do that when schools are shut down? It's not safe for him to be around other children. Um, It's really difficult. There's other ways, of course, where we do video modeling. Um, we role play together, but I'm an adult. He's not really getting that like realistic environment, that naturalistic environment that we call. So it's it has been tough. We read social stories, we make social stories, but that can only do so much, you know? Like one of the goals that I was working with a kiddo was um, playing a board game with friends. Playing a board game with your therapist is way different than playing with a board game with friends. Because what? Some There's going to be a winner. There's going to be a loser. What do kids do when they win? I won. You're a loser. You know, they get like all this. My kid has to know how to manage his emotions in those settings. I can role play and pretend I'm that, you know, snobby kid that wins and he's a loser and say these things. But he's going to behave different with me than with his friends, you know? So... Services used to be in the school setting, but because schools were shut down and stuff, we were doing it in the home setting and trying to do as best as we can with what we have. I go back to what is the role of the parent, you know, in this, like just as much effort 
and money that's put into the behavioral therapy means is twice the effort that the parent has to put in because they have to be on top of this throughout, right? It's not like you could be like, all right, here, here, here's, here's a kid, teach him what you need to teach him while I go pay attention to something else. That's not how this works. No, and that's a tough one too because there has to be a parent, when we're in the home, there has to be a parent present, right? So um, for families that don't have that parent that can stay home and be with us during the therapy, you know, it's, it's tough. And yes, they have to be, um, attending and like sometimes participating in our sessions so it's tough and sometimes the parents are like I didn't go to school for this what like what what am I supposed to do like I didn't go to school for and you will have parents that straight up will tell you I didn't go to school for this 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 has nothing to do with me and you know unfortunately we have had parents that are like that you know and I understand I don't judge anybody because I understand nobody knows their struggle unless you're them so a lot of people like to point fingers and say your kid is like this because you did this or xyz and if you're not in that situation and you haven't lived through that then you can't really talk yeah they're not it's more and more obvious as as our conversation continues is that the the attention to detail is important the interaction is important the just attention to detail is fundamental yeah because if, if that detail is taken away or if that supervision is taken away then it just opens up a whole portal of a pile of crap for like a better phrase like yeah. to just pile on and pile on and pile on um, um so this brings me so i feel the pressure you know i'm not even a parent yet right and i feel the pressure now one thing that to me stood out and a story that stood out um here in south florida was the alejandro and patricia ripley case um that we discussed earlier in the show um how often do things like that happen, Donia? Well, like you said, I want to emphasize on not justifying her behavior. But I feel like she was cornered off. I don't understand how people did not see... This just doesn't happen, like, you know, from one day to another. There had to be precursors. I'm sure they must have been going through a really hard time one adjusting with all the challenges of a pandemic i want to really emphasize too change in routines with kids with developmental disabilities is huge something very simple as we're gonna get a haircut or we're going to go to a new restaurant sometimes i have to do social stories and work with them for weeks until that kid goes to that new restaurant or gets the haircut. And there's steps that we work on. So going from, oh, I go to school Monday through Friday, I have this routine, I have this, I'm gonna see my therapist, you know, to no, we're gonna stay inside and we can't go outside. We can't go anywhere. And I can only imagine what that family was going through with that being such a big change in routine, going from living your normal life to you know having that stay at home not being able to do the things that you like to do imagine if the kid likes to eat ice cream on tuesdays and it's tuesday and you didn't take him to eat ice cream it's gonna be a big deal you know once again this is a ch child with developmental disabilities yes and he was nine years old he was nonverbal. like i said nonverbal children it's really tough old age to not be able to speak right yes and I also was reading that he was in diapers. So that's another thing. Imagine, you know, having a nine-year-old 
that can't tell you his needs or wants is in diapers and you're not having the help that you need from the school from the therapist i'm not sure what his um like if he was receiving services or not i know a lot of companies shut down during the pandemic they couldn't provide their services and unfortunately those kids were left without therapy but i can tell you from my experience children that are nonverbal usually have aggressive behaviors because that's like we go back that's the way they communicate although we teach them their tools how to communicate with picture exchange an ipad whatever it is the most like the fastest way to communicate something sometimes is by expression yes exactly expressing yourself by hitting biting that's the fastest way you can get a reaction right maybe I've had times that kids are using their appropriate words, so asking for something. For example, I've had a case where um, my kid would tell me, I'm not hungry, but the family wants, he needs, you know, in our Hispanic culture where they're like, no, but he needs to eat, puts the food there. He appropriately said, I'm not hungry. We should listen to that, right? But no, you're forcing him to eat. So what does he do? Flips the plate over now the plate is in shattered food is on the floor you know stimuli everywhere exactly so then like what i'm trying to say is like sometimes when a child like let's say he was appropriately expressing himself let's say where this is hypothetical and mm, let's say mom was busy or let's say whoever couldn't play with him or whatever it is you don't know what kind of behaviors that would lead to, you know? So we don't know what that family was living through. We don't know if that family was having to fight him every day physically and mentally because it drains you. Um, we don't know how, how it was, but I can only imagine. And we should be more compassionate and figure out, like, why did she not have the help that she needed? Why did she not reach out? Like, did she reach out to people? Did she, what did she do to try to help her child? Because one of the statements that she said is that he's in a better place. For you to believe that your child is in a better place because he's not alive anymore, that's really sad. Not knowing the exact details, but uh, except for what's on this, the article and the story, it's clear that she had to put other things in front of her child's life. And it, you're telling me that this happens often, more often than not. Yeah, well, the challenges that are faced with these families, yes. I see them day and day. Most of these families, sometimes you see them and they end up in divorce. Most parents are not together because of all that friction, because it, it's tough. It's really, really tough. And some families don't even talk to other family members because a lot of people are like, let's not invite this person here because then they bring their child and their child doesn't know how to behave. Or even going to the grocery store, you see a child that's tantruming and you're like, oh, that parent, like they need to calm their child down or something like that. And we don't know. We don't know what that, that family can be facing. A, a kid with autism looks just like any other kid, right? So sometimes we're like, oh, why, why is this kid doing that? Or why is this kid doing that? And like, why is he behaving that way? And we're like so quick to judge so quick to judge and we're not thinking like what could what could like what could they be going through you know now let's turn to a more positive and hopefully optimistic angle um, um 
What are some of the solutions here? Um, I know COVID-19 has thrown a giant curveball in everybody's life, how every industry operates, but out of that has come a lot of positive things, a lot of things to light, you know? I know we were talking earlier that that behavior therapy is very reliant on hand-to-hand communication, you know, in-person communication, but now you're forced to do this from home on a computer. How, are there any benefits in that, and what are they? Yeah, they are. Um, so... There's a lot of videos on YouTube that can help you navigate certain issues. So, for example, I have a kid that's going back to school. So, I do a quick Google search and there's already social stories on wearing masks, washing hands, um, keeping your distance from your friends. Maybe we're not gonna give hugs and high fives. Now we're gonna wave and you know use our words or whatever the fact but there's a lot of resources on youtube and there's also a lot of resources um on on the internet in general like there's so many blogs there's one blog in specific it's called i love aba and she does such a good job of giving parents resources even from what a behavioral therapist should be doing in everyday session what um like even our strategies like i've gotten information from that blog to help me be a better therapist you know so yeah there's lots of resources quick google search and we're joined once again by adania ramirez behavior therapist based out of south florida and Mm -hmm. adania so how important is it for the parents to seek out this information and to be open with reality and what i mean by that is how how important is it to put your story on YouTube, for example? How important is it to you to speak to other parents that are going through the same thing? Is it better to put your story out there? And I know that comes with challenges, like you explained earlier. Or is it better to keep things private? I know it depends on the person, but in your experience and your expertise, what do you, you know, I mean, if you're saying that social interaction is fundamental for the child's development, I would assume that that would be a good thing. Yes. Um, so. I encourage parents to do it. I encourage parents to speak out with other parents that are going through the same thing. So that way they can, you know, build a group on their own and help each other. Um, it, it's very important. I, like you said, it's case by case. It depends if you're a person that likes to put out your stuff or is a private person. You know, it just depends on that. But um, I even like search things on YouTube and I see like vlogs and stuff of like, family vlogs of like people who have autism and um like they just put their stories out and these are adults but there's also you know families who have a child with autism and they share their experience with their daughter it does come with backlash because some people are not going to think oh what you're doing with your daughter is not right or whatever there's always going to be that commentary but you never know what's right for your child. You don't, you're not living with them. We go back to not judging people. Maybe what's right for your child is not right for somebody else's child. Ultimately, it's the family's job at the end of the day. No matter how much aid you give them, it's up to the family's job to make this work or not work. I would tell the parents to, you know, they know what's best for their child, ultimately. I can help them, give them the tools and resources to help their child and also you can look up online you know do your part as well um i can't tell you what's best for your child only you i can help you for example i've had clients that i work with for a year two years right i tried to do my best to give the parents as much of things in my tools um 
but ultimately they're going to be with their child for the rest of their lives, you know? So they know what's right for their child and what's not right for their child. So I guess it just it tailors to case by case. Um, I would definitely tell the parents to not be so hard on themselves. Sometimes I see parents that are really, really hard, like kids will regress, especially with COVID, a lot of kids regress because of their change in routines, because of um, them not being able to get the therapy that they usually get. So regression is there, but don't get put down because of that. Because sometimes, like, although kids regress, they go back up faster than they learned the first time, you know? So there's hope. And get those helps, get those resources. If you're feeling some kind of way also, like, depressed or um, burnt out, because even we get burnt out. I've worked sessions, five-hour sessions with kids, and I've gotten burnt out. Danya Ramirez, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was a really good time and I'm glad that you're doing this. I'm so proud of you. Exercise your right and register to vote at vote.gov or rockthevote.org. The general election, the presidential election, will be Tuesday, November 3rd. The registration deadline for the general election is on Monday, October 5th. The early voting period for the general election will be October 24th through October 31st. That's one week. You have one week to take advantage of that early voting period. And don't forget, folks, you can also vote by mail. For more information, check out vote.gov and rockthevote.org. Thank you for joining us on Perspectives. I want to thank Donnie Ramirez for joining us. Follow us on all social media platforms, Apple Music, Spotify, and especially check out thepowerculture.com. We can stream and listen to all of the Perspective episodes along with more content focusing on culture, news, music, and art. Powerculture.com. Peace.